When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. StarTalk Radio first interviewed Anthony Bourdain back in 2013 in a show we called A Seat at the Table with Anthony Bourdain. It was, it was my first time meeting him. And I was just struck at the time and ever since by his humble beginnings and what they had turned into, what he had made for himself over the years, having begun early on as a dishwasher in a restaurant. And uh, he speaks candidly about these beginnings, his early drug addictions. I had not at the time yet read his memoir on this subject, but he was been quite candid about it his whole life. And to realize that uh, in America, you can overcome such curveballs. You can overcome such obstacles and still make a life for yourself, a brilliant life for yourself, not only for yourself, but for others. So many people were touched by him, by his personality, by his, his honesty, his authenticity, that that is apparent in every sentence that he utters. I think what we'll miss most about Anthony Bourdain is how much he reminded us or alerted us for the first time, if we never knew, how important food is for bringing us together. Think about it. Often the food of another culture is your first encounter with that culture before you even meet a person who represents that food. You eat their food. You say, oh, this is intriguing. Oh, this is odd. I wonder why they did it this way or what accounts for this tradition or this habit. And Anthony Bourdain wasn't simply a celebrity chef. He was, yes, he was that, but he was also someone who reminded us how small the world is or how small, how small the world needs to be. For Anthony Bourdain, your seat at the table wasn't just a place to share food. It was a place to share culture, a place to experience people and places and things that are different from us, but in a completely unarresting way, in a completely calm and uh, honest and, and embracing way, no matter how different their food is from your expectations or your desires. So, I present for you uh, Star Talk Radio's 2013 interview with Anthony Bourdain. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History, right here in New York City. 
where I also serve as the director of the Hayden Planetarium. And I have with me my co-host for this program, the one, the only, Eugene Merman. Eugene, Hello, welcome Neil. back. Welcome Man. back to me. We so, we so tap your talents for this. Thank you. And mm -hmm. this will not be the last. No. For sure. This would be a fun way to fire me. And you're still, okay. you're still on uh, uh, one of the voices in Bob's... I'm still one of the voices of Bob's Burgers, also not replaced. B Bob's Burgers. Yeah. Burger. We'll get back to burgers. burgers in a minute. Yeah. Today's show, by the way, is about like food and nutrition. So I combed the land. Then I found someone who actually has the title. Professor of Nutrition at New York University, Marion Nessel. Marion, welcome to Star Talk. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I think. She thinks. <laughs> yeah, so you'll be the judge of that later, we'll find out. First, I, I'm intrigued and impressed that there's such a thing as a professor of nutrition. So, so uh, I'm glad that somebody he has thought that. of it like alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no, no so there are nutrition departments all over the country. Never, no, I just never, never ran into. I never ran into one, and I'm glad you were here oh. and ready for us. Oh, ready for you. Because in this episode of Star Talk, we have my interview with Anthony Bourdain. He's the famous TV yeah. travel chef. chef travel chef. In fact, I got you know. First, he had a a New York Times best-selling book mm -hmm. in the year 2000 titled Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. Best-selling book. All Which right. I understand is a very accurate account. Excellent, excellent. So he's been around a while and he had a long-standing Travel Channel show mm -hmm. called, of course, No Reservations. And he's moving from the Travel Channel mm -hmm. to CNN. Yeah. And he's going to do a show, uh, Cuisines of the World. Yeah. So I just chatted with him about what made him tick, what got him interested in food. In particular, what intrigues me, and we'll get back to you on this in a minute, is just how cuisine can be so different around the world. What mm -hmm. some people think is nasty, other people <laughs> think is extraordinary. And, and, and how people just eat differently around the world. So let's go to this first clip right away and we'll have a lot of time to talk about it and carry it into the other segments. My opening clip with Anthony Bourdain, chef extraordinaire. People always say, oh, I've been to this country and this food is a delicacy there. That's cute to me that it, the food tastes nasty or some bug that they pulled out of the ground and sauteed. So what, what's with people saying something is a delicacy? Well, it's rare or expensive. You know, it's valued more than, you know, the way we look at the shrimp or lobster or truffles as the good stuff. A lot of people in this world look at ingredients that many of us would probably have difficulty with. It's, that's an attitude that changes really quickly the more you travel. Something I got over very quickly, particularly, you know, you talk about, wow, their food in Thailand is really repulsive to me. I mean, they eat bugs. But the Thais, who are largely a non-dairy culture, try to put yourself in their shoes. They're looking at us, you know, eat a cottage cheese or Roquefort would be truly <laughs> horrifying. And if you think about it for a second, what that must look like. Yeah, so you, you get some milk and then like turn it into cheese and then let mold grow on it and right. eat it. Yeah, yeah. just hideous. <laughs> I got over sort of uh, using words like bizarre a long time ago when looking at how other people eat around the world. But what I do find interesting, though, is you go from one country to the next, and one of the simplest measures of this is what is the assortment of flavors that they infuse in their potato chips? Mm -hmm. yeah. For example, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, so it, it, in Japan they have like fish-flavored yes. potato chips. This, I mean, we eat fish here, mm -hmm. but I don't know that that would sell. 
there are whole spectrums of flavors that other countries, other cultures uh, take for granted and, and require in their diet. Uh, the Philippines, there's a whole uh, bitter component that we are almost instinctively not happy with. I mean, they will, they will introduce bile into dishes to give it a, that welcome bitter note. Cultures like Scandinavian cultures, where there's a very limited spectrum of flavors, not a lot of spices traditionally, a lot of fresh fish, fresh fish, frozen fish, more fresh fish, maybe some preserved fish, as well as South Pacific cultures, where it's all sort of sweet, fresh fish, not a lot of salty, savory. There's a tradition of rotting things, like fermenting fish, getting it really offensively funky by our standards, just because, I think, out of boredom. It introduces you know? another flavor. And it's worth noting also that we... Western societies, anyway, used to used to do that. Roman times, the condiment of choice was essentially something called garum. It was essentially rotten fish guts and rotten fish sauce. This was the salt, the principal seasoning ingredient all across Europe. So even our own tastes have changed. For a lot of people, the last frontier is the textural thing. Particularly in Asia, they like, you know, squishy or even rubbery, chewy or... A lot of traditional European cultures, you know, cartilage texture, that's something that we really have a problem with. We tend to like crispy. Once you cross that border, you, you're really, you're, you're someplace special. To get back to your question about delicacies and value, a lot of, I think, you got to ask always, is there a, an assumed medical component to what we're talking about also? I think a lot of what we consider the really freakiest foods, the eye-popping, what the, why would you eat that? A lot of that has either folk medicine or uh, traditional Chinese medicine applications or a regular feature in my life in China is if something arrives still wriggling or there's a sex organ involved, it's usually accompanied by winking and banging on the bottom of the table. So, this will make you strong. You know, many, many <laughs> sons. You know, it's like, oh, God. Wow. So, Marion, I got to go straight to you on this. When we think of nutrition, I think of things that are tasty that might be good for me. And for so many of the cultures of the world, I don't know that they have an active science of nutrition, but they just simply know what has worked over the centuries, right? So is a person more likely to think that something tasty is actually nutritious? Probably. Um, but the point is that people, the physiology. Yeah, but yeah. people eat what's available. You know, if you before there were supermarkets, um, and before there was internet food, and before there was food on every corner, people had to eat what was available to them. So they learned to put together a diet that supported life, supported reproduction. Based so on, the empirics based of that on, is, if you died, you didn't keep doing yeah. it. Yeah, they, wouldn't <laughs> so you be, would eat. they wouldn't be here if it hadn't worked. <laughs> so, so wait, you were saying that, that people would eat healthy... You would think that some, like you would think like ribs were delicious because they're were healthy because they're delicious. If you had them, if, if you, you had, had them, if you'd you be had like, this them. Must be because these people survive, these yeah. cultures survive, these populations survive. So it's self-selecting. Yeah. So it's self-selecting. So and we know that healthy diets can be made out of almost anything as long as the foods yeah. are varied. In India, and you don't they eat drink too, a and you don't eat too much of, soup. Yeah, and you don't eat too much of them. On that note, we'll come back to Star Talk Radio after this break. We're back on Star Talk Radio, and I've got Eugene Lerman. Hello. And this show yes. is about nutrition. 
So professor of nutrition here, yeah. <laughs> Marion Nessel. Marion, thanks for being on Star Talk. Pleasure. Coming up from New York University. And in fact, you have a book just was published, Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics. How about That's that? That's awesome. Because calories do count. They do. So here we are talking about nutrition all around the world. And so here are people eating local foods. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking, does it have vitamin C? Does it mm -hmm. have vitamin A? But if someone gets mm -hmm. sick or the tribe doesn't continue, presumably they figured out that that diet wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And so over the generations, an emergent diet comes that happens to work out. Mm -hmm. If it didn't, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't yeah. be here. That's Everyone who tried to just only eat dirt is dead. <laughs> That's right. All <laughs> the, <laughs> the religions and the people who just only All just, the cults and yeah, all the things. like suck on a weird rock and be like, I still feel hungry. They're all dead. They're all dead. Mm -hmm. All we have now is French food and right. a lot of Asian food. So here in America, mm -hmm. I guess since the 1950s, but certainly in recent decades, fast food is a major part of the mm. American diet. It's everywhere. And then with the American cultural influence around the world, our fast food restaurants are showing up in other countries. Mm -hmm. Is that good? Is it bad? I mean, do you have an opinion on this? It's business. There's only a certain amount that people can eat. Americans, they're maxed out on what they can eat. If these companies want to make money, they have to move it overseas. So and they that's can't make us doing. fatter than we are. Yeah, yeah. We've hit I a think fat <laughs> max. <laughs> and we now need to make everyone in Vietnam fat. And then, We're working on it. Yes. And then when Earth is done with the yeah, next yeah. planet, right? <laughs> All right, but fast food shouldn't necessarily make a person fat. Not if they don't eat too much of if it. If they don't eat too much of it. So yeah. the issue is not the existence of fast food, it's the regulation of the consumption of food. Yes, and that turns out to be evolutionarily complicated because we have about a hundred physiological factors that encourage us to eat more. And one or two. Because historically, on the Serengeti, you, mm. that's survival. If yeah. you found a McDonald's in the Serengeti, you would be like, I'm going to eat all I can. Every, because the next McDonald's is far away. Centuries away, possibly. <laughs> centuries away. Well, I had a brother in law no. who grew up in Alaska, and every time we fed him, we said, Do you want seconds? And he said, You never know when you're going to eat next. But the fact is, he does know when he's going to eat next, and it's in three hours when it's the next meal. <laughs> right. So we're not very well tuned to the environment that we're in, and our physiology is much better at saying, eat, 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 you're hungry, better get the glucose to the brain quick, and much, much less effective at telling us when to stop. When to not eat. Alas. We're like geese trying to turn ourselves into foie gras. <laughs> yes, <you're> right. <laughs> Banned in California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying the ready availability of fast food is what's contributing to our inability to stop eating. Yeah, the things that encourage people to eat more are having it right there. Mm -hmm. If we had candy here, we'd be eating it. The fact that you could eat it any time, night or day, 24-7. Uh, because you got the refrigerator that's got the food through the right. night, mm -hmm. and there's a corner person selling your food, right. particularly in the cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes people eat more. You make it more. sound like gluttonous monsters <laughs> surrounded by piles no, of food. We're just in, uh, encouraged so we're to, not make our, to exercise our physiology. Right. We're not biologically prepared for the world we've created around That's ourselves. That's right. Right. That's right. You know, I spoke with Anthony Bourdain about this just to get his reaction to it. Let's find out what he says. So what about the idea of what Americans have done to some foods. We put cheese in a can. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe the cheese tastes okay, but that's got to be an abomination to the cheese cultures of the world. Increasingly, the French are doing it too. You know, the great cheese-making cultures, by joining the EU, have agreed to bastardize a lot of their traditional artisanal products, like cured meats, traditional forms of cheese-making. They've been killing their own products for years 
Is that uh, not our influence, our cultural influence on them? It's a combination of convenience food culture. Well, that's, uh, uh, who invented convenience uh, food? Well, America. I think it's a byproduct of post-war affluence, less time to kick back. Second World War. Yeah. <laughs> Must uh, specify yeah. for the current generation. Um, people forget. They lose touch with their roots. They learn to demand newer, saltier flavors. So it's not just us, unfortunately. So there's not only the concept of fast food, to which there's been this resistance, I guess they're calling it slow food, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, has, has that movement caught on? People certainly talk about or think about where their food's coming from a lot more, and not just at the elite foodie levels. People, even if they're not particularly knowledgeable about organics or sustainable or local or artisanal, all of those very Cat fuzzy phrases. words, at least they're thinking about it now. You only need to look at, like McDonald's has publicly forsworn any use of pink slime. Pink slime, it is not an ingredient according to the rules. It is a process that allowed ground beef manufacturers to essentially buy the outer cuts of beef that would otherwise previously have had to be discarded or used for pet food because they were more likely to come in contact with hides, excrement, other animals, and contain E. coli. They found that by introducing, as I understand it, an ammonia vapor, basically steaming this stuff, whipping it into a mulch-like paste with bits of extruded fat, mixing it into this slime and processing it with ammonia, that they were able to bring the likelihood of E. coli down. Now, it doesn't sound like good stuff, for sure. And there was clearly a backlash, though not a huge one. The, the fact that McDonald's and other major uh, retail outlets are saying, we're not using it anymore, it's not like they're nice guys. They're looking pretty far into the future and seeing that this is going to come back and bite us. We're saving money now, we're making money now, but this could really come back and hurt our brand. So clearly that's one of many indications of this sort of thinking affecting the marketplace, you know? Yeah, so it wasn't, like you said, it was not a separate ingredient because it was still beef. Well, that's up to you to decide whether <laughs> the introduction of an ammonia vapor or whatever is an ingredient or a process. Personally, I would like to know if there's ammonia in my cleaning product yeah. in my meat. All right, so this is kind of America's hallmark. I mean, agribusiness, growing production and storage technologies I think America has led the world in this. We have. But, We're spending, but, I looked this up recently. We're spending a third today of our annual budget on food compared with what we were doing in the 1950s. Our single largest privately held company is a food producer. I think Cargill is the biggest American privately held company. And so we've we're making more food on less land with fewer farmers than ever before. No doubt about it. You know, frozen food, surely a good thing. Most of these things, but you know, with the good comes the bad, and the bad might be that it is in the financial interest of some very large, powerful companies that you continue to eat badly and too much. And they're going to spend a lot of money, as any company will do, to make you continue to buy their products. And a lot of these products are not ideal staples of any diet. We well, need only look at the way Americans look and the state of our health to see that that's the truth. So is processed food bad? I like French fries. I like burgers. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, burger last night. It's a it's not like cigarettes. It's a matter of proportion. It's not you can't eat it. It's that you can't eat too much of it. Right. Uh huh. That's hard. So it is so good and so cheap. It makes it that much harder to regulate. Mm -hmm. And the politics come into how come it's so cheap. Okay. So what what's an example of that? We subsidize corn and soybeans. We don't subsidize broccoli. 
And soybeans, what do we do with that that's so bad uh, for soy people? Soy oil, it goes into processed foods. So yeah. what's your solution to this? Is it to make food more expensive? Is it to change the availability of it? Mm -hmm. what, what's the solution? Yeah, here? you want to change the environment in order to make it easier for people to eat more healthfully. That's what Mayor Bloomberg is trying to do with his 16-ounce soda cap. He's trying to outlaw 20-ounce sodas in the city. Yeah, uh, he's trying to make fat people illegal, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> So are you over that line? Are you, you ready? I don't drink a lot of soda. I'm just a regular fat person. Uh, but I think that ban sounds pretty good. But what if we subsidize parsley? It's not a ban. It's a car. It's yeah, a yeah. It's a, it's a cap. It's a cap. Uh, so there is a, a public good that laws can serve because somebody out there is more concerned about your health than you are. Yes, because they have to pay for it. Right. If something goes wrong. Right. The insurance base, the tax yeah. base. I mean, there have been estimates, I don't know how good they are, that overweight costs America $190 billion a year. Yeah. I don't want You can go to Mars twice for that. I'd l I would hope so. <laughs> wow. And imagine if the trip was full of people who were overweight. <laughs> the, the savings combined with shipping away the problem. That's a double. Plus the exploration, it's just like, I'm full of solutions. <laughs> so. Lately, fast food has been fortified in ways, so you are getting vitamins and minerals and things. Isn't oh, that it right? has vitamins and minerals and protein and other kinds of nutrients. It's not sodas. Sodas are the only thing that have calories and no nutrients. And no nutrients, yeah. Um, okay, and so, alcohol, sorry. Okay, so... You think there's no, there's no nutrients? There's no... Not no. even whiskey? Especially whiskey. <laughs> what about red wine? Mm, it no. makes pregnant people run faster? Isn't that true? That's true. <laughs> when we come back to Star Talk Radio... We're, more with my interview with Anthony Bourdain. We're talking about nutrition around the world, food around the world. More on Star Talk Radio when we come back. You're listening to a 2013 interview that I conducted with Anthony Bourdain for Star Talk Radio. This was about when his TV show shifted from the Travel Channel to CNN to become Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown. That title is a reminder that on his show, you're not only going to be talking about food, you're going to be an adventurer and an explorer. And that's what his successful TV show had become on CNN. Let's pick up the interview with Anthony Bourdain. We're back on Star Talk Radio, and I'm with Eugene Merman. Hello. And I've got Professor Marion Nessel, spelled like Nestle, I guess, but without the without accent. Without the accent. There Revelation. you go. Too bad, right? Yes. She's Professor of Nutrition at New York University. She's thought a lot, about, a lot about this, and not only nutrition in general, but the role of food and its impact on culture and politics. And in fact, you've got a book out called Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics. Excellent title. Check it out. So what's interesting is different regions of the world have different diets, and you can look at how long those people live. Mm -hmm. and say, hey, maybe something's going on in their culture that's not going on in my culture. They've talked about the Mediterranean diet that is high in, I guess, olive oils and things. There's the Japanese, uh, broadly the Asian diet, which is very low fat, uh, high carbs. Uh, let's hear what Anthony Bourdain had to say about it, then we come back and get some of the science of why that may or may not be true. Let's check it out. Tell me about these diets, we call them diets, but it's just the mainstay mm -hmm. culinary offerings in, in various parts of the world. There's a lot spoken of the Mediterranean diet or the Japanese diet. Yep. And they live a long time. Heart disease is low. 
from your life experience, is all that true? No doubt about it. I mean, you, you go to Crete, for instance. Well, I guess we know it's true, but... Look, if you're... If you're going to credit the food or because there's no stress well, or because... The, how big a factor is the food? I'm guessing there's... You know, you're a Vietnamese rice farmer. There's... You're working hard. You're you working. Know, well... You are working hard and there's there's stress in your life, uh, okay. especially if you've been through three or four wars in the yes. last 30 years. Yes. All right. uh, I don't think that's it. I think clearly the ratio, in much of the world, the ratio of... You know, I'm a confirmed carnivore, but clearly there's something to be said for cultures where the ratio of meat of protein to uh, to fresh vegetables uh, is completely different. Ours is Opposite. distorted. Um, much of the cultures we're talking about, they use meat or bone or a, or protein almost as a flavoring ingredient. Very careful, it's much almost. more value. A condiment. Um, yeah. You have delicious, for the most part, vegetables. A generally, a, a filler like starch, like whether it's rice or cassava or or potato, wherever it is. Clearly, it has an impact on 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 you know, what your body looks like and, and how long you're going to live. You know, no doubt about it. All right. Now you're, you're over six feet tall in Japan. People hardly get that height. Mm -hmm. So is it a trade off between that kind of diet and whether you grow tall? Well, uh, I don't think it's a trade off we make anymore because they're getting taller and bigger. There's no doubt about it as, as they become fonder of Western food and processed food. I mean, the same thing's happening there as here, uh, the bulking of, of, of the world. But I think, uh, yeah, there clearly is. I mean, one of my favorite, I, you know, I, I'm not particularly well inclined. I, as, as much as it might be good to eat more vegetables and less animal protein, I'm not particularly well inclined towards really hardcore, unwavering uh, vegans. So one of my favorite uh, statistics is that apparently vegans in non-industrialized cultures seem to do very much better than vegans in industrialized cultures. And people were trying to figure out why that was, why they're living longer and seem healthier. And <laughs> apparently the insect parts and uh, the carcasses uh, in rice, uh, much higher in non-industrial cultures. And it's, left so, in, it's left in the product. Uh, yeah, so basically they're getting a lot more animal <laughs> protein. <laughs> insect protein. We're flicking away the insects out of our vegetables. Very, very high in, in protein bugs, by the way. People eat those for a reason. <laughs> So, you know, I happen to know separately that little people live longer than mm -hmm. big people. Mm -hmm. So if you have a culture where everyone's little, then maybe leave it doesn't matter what leave, they eat. Leave like them alone. That, that's why babies live forever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in, in, in certain cultures, people are just smaller. Maybe that's the biggest driver for their longevity. Or is there much truth in these diets that, uh, oh, what can you say? Oh, the statistics all show that there are plenty of countries in the world that have much lo better longevity than we do. And they tend to have in common that they eat more plant foods fruits and vegetables and grains, and they don't eat as much meat, and they don't eat as much junk food. And as the American fast food and soda companies... It's not just fewer calories. It's oh, the yes. actual no, mixture of... It has a lot to do with calories. It's just harder to eat so much parsley that it's as many <laughs> calories really as a burger. Hard, I've tried. I've tried. really <laughs> hard to get fat on parsley. <laughs> you have to eat roomfuls of it. It's really tough. Now, now, Buddha, last I checked, was a vegetarian, and he's generally shown as quite... Chubby. Chubby. Yes, but yeah. everybody was bringing him rice offerings yeah. all okay. day. He had a very high carb diet. Yeah, all right. That's all the day reason. Long. Okay, so so you're prepared to say that if in America, if we want to live longer, cut the meat. 
uh, cut, cut the calories. Oh, cut the calories. Cut the calories. Cut the calories and change the balance of the meat. And change the balance. Yeah. Eat more fruits and vegetables. Don't eat so much junk food. Uh, balance calories and love what you're eating. What does that do for That's you? That's my advice. Oh. <laughs> love what, meaning eat, find ways to make find. foods that aren't burgers delicious. Yeah, or just make sure that you enjoy what you <laughs> Burger enjoy is the, the reference eat. frame I, for all I don't of even, I don't even, I mean, you know. I live, burgers but are totally food fine. food is one of great, life's greatest pleasures. You yeah. should enjoy it and not make it your enemy. Makes it me should so be your friend. To be friends. <laughs> right? Food is Befriend your friend. Befriend food. You're like Yoda. You're like, befriend food, eat it. When we come back, so more of my clips with Anthony Bourdain <laughs> and my in-studio guest, Marion Nestle, and of course, Eugene Merman. Be right back. We're back. Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your host. Find us on the web at StarTalkRadio.net. You can download our archives of shows. Great stuff there. And not only that, we're on Facebook. Like us there. Just Star Talk Radio. You'll find us. And we tweet Star Talk Radio, of course. Eugene, you tweet. Yes. At Eugene Merman. Yes. M I R M I N. M A N. And my special guest today, right? I tweet. You tweet? Nice. I do. A tweeting nutritionist. Marion Nestle. Marion Nestle. Oh, Marion Nestle. Came out of that previous segment. I called you Nestle. I'm sorry. Perfectly all right. I can't be the first one. No relation. You're not the first. And I'm not the first. And you won't be the last. And I surely won't be the last. By the way, we're also on the Nerdist channel of YouTube. Check us out in video form. So we're featuring my interview with Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Right, he gets around, he makes great food, he eats food that is prepared all around the world, and an intriguing subject, as you know, because not everyone eats the same way. My great disappointment traveling America is the same restaurants are in the same places. And I asked him about food that's sort of good or bad, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. you can make that judgment, I suppose. You mean, like, morally? Because <laughs> he travels the world. I mean, when you travel, you eat different foods. Yeah, yeah. So I asked him, what kind of good food did he have? What kind of bad food? No, just oh, what, what didn't did he... taste good. Yeah, yeah. Tasted good, didn't taste good. That's yeah, all. Yeah. But might be a delicacy in its land. So let's right. find out what he said. The fermented fish in Iceland is something I will never, ever be able to really, I mean, even many people in Iceland, probably even the majority. It, it's a celebrated national dish that they eat on their holidays, and it's basically rotten sharp. I'm not going to be visiting that again. I could choke down anything to be a good guest. The Really, the only real problems are when it's a matter of freshness, you know, when it's a really poor culture with very limited access to ingredients. You have a They're, hearty digestive system? I mean, yeah, but I mean, uh, the two times that I've, I've been brought down and lost a day's work were both tribal situations, the whole tribe looking at me, it's it's bushmeat, it's whatever protein they could scrounge, it's not in good shape. There are cleanliness issues. You I took one for the team. Then. I absolutely did. Oh my did. gosh. <laughs> the surprises are everywhere. Eating street food in Asia changed my life. It ru ruined my life in wonderful ways. When you've had a really well-made bowl of spicy noodles in Vietnam, even out of a chipped bowl on a low plastic stool in the street, your old breakfasts just won't cut it anymore. You cannot go back to be the person you were before when you've experienced some of the degree of spice, complexity, and even a little bit of pain. There's an element of sadomasochism in some of that food that's kind of disturbing and yet uh, enticing. 
good and bad food around the world. I mean, this was parodied in or captured in the Indiana Jones yeah. second of those. Where the, he has to eat the b little boy's heart? I can't remember what no, happens. No. <laughs> that's <laughs> when they pull the heart out. And they give him the Icelandic shark. That's shield monkey brain and sure. eyeball soup. And uh, so, are these real foods out there? They must be. Uh, whatever they're, if they're being served, they're obviously real foods. Yeah. Unless they're trying to get you. It's do they do that? If you go somewhere, they're like, we eat brains all the time. And they're like, no, we don't. So is there study on the nutritional analysis of all these exotic Absolutely. foods? Absolutely. And what do you guys find? I mean, I guess they have nutrients. All foods have nutrients. At the end of the day, they're just eating something that was once alive. That's right. How, how good are sweetbreads for you, would you say? Um, I think in small quantities, I wouldn't It's neither sweet nor is it bread. No, it's but neither sweet nor bread. They're, they're, sure. It's organ meat yeah. of mammals. But yeah. if a tiny Some bit of it will make you strong and fast and outrun people drinking red wine. <laughs> wouldn't you, wouldn't you <laughs> love that? I'm just trying to have you go, like, most people don't know this, but eating butter in the morning is very good for you. And I'm like, why won't you tell me this? Because <laughs> they've got their safe yeah. of secrets. Because uh, yeah, yeah. I'm one of these people who thinks it's okay to eat whatever you like as long as you vary it and don't eat too much of it. Right. Alright, so mm. the foods that are really horrendous, is, do you think there's something, it must be cultural, I, I mean, a learned taste buds. Yeah, is that, yeah, I mean, if everybody, if you grew up on eating sweetbreads all the time, you would think it was a great delicacy. If you grew up on eating crickets all the time, you would think it was a great You'd be right about sweetbreads, but wrong about crickets. Wrong about crickets. I'm just saying. There you are. Just, That's cultural Just to give a world blanket statement. Yeah. Whether or not Americans are the right answer to this question, hold it aside. What country in the world has the worst health? The worst health? Yes. Oh. Excluding America? Yes. Oh, I would say the countries that are poorest. So poorest. Poorest countries. So poorest and then the fattest. Yeah, that's right. so go poorest, poorest, fatties. That, that, that too. And then and just like vegetarian Asians. <laughs> and what's happening in the, you know, and what's happening in the developing countries now is that as everybody gets a little money, they start eating more. They just but then they just eat start eating like Kit Kats and, and stuff. And they start eating like we do and yeah. they put on weight and develop type two diabetes and there it goes. It even has a name, it's called the nutrition transition. Nutrition transition. Where it goes from Hungry to, diabe to type to 2 diabetes. diabetes. In one fell swoop. When we come back, Star Talk Radio, we're talking about nutrition. My clips with Anthony Bourdain. We'll see you in a moment. Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I got Eugene Merman and Professor of Nutrition, Marian Nessel. The verb, not the chocolate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nestle, that would be. <laughs> Is that what it says on your card? <laughs> the verb, not the chocolate. <laughs> the verb, not the uh, We've been featuring my interview with Anthony Bourdain, the, yeah. the TV chef and world traveler, tasting exotic foods. And it's uh, just interesting to hear how he got to where he is. Everyone's got a story. He's got a story, yeah. and the story surprised me entirely. I had no idea this was in his... I guess I could have done my homework, but I wanted yes. it all to be fresh. Like it surprised you because you didn't Google it. Because <laughs> I didn't Google it. No, but it was all very fresh, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a delightful uh, success story. Let's, let's check out what he, said, what he tells us. Well, I was an angry, uh, embittered, uh, spoiled, 
I was a bad kid. Where would you grow up? Grew up in New Jersey in the suburbs, right oh, across the river. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what exit? Right, I was okay. just very disappointed with the way that the 60s turned out, and uh, I was a bitter, self-destructive, uh, drug-seeking uh, kid who really had a hard time uh, finding anything to believe in, and I found a home the way that a lot of people find a home in the military. I found a home in the restaurant business. I mean, this was a, a world of absolutes that I responded to. I, I liked the science of, to me, it was a revelation working as a dishwasher. Why? Because plates went in dirty and they came out clean every time. And if I did my job of washing dishes, I got the respect of hardworking people in the kitchen. And that made me feel proud of myself in a way I never had before. Uh, I'll tell you really, so that really was a tr transitional. Transitional. I went from a very unhappy, self-destructive college kid, a college dropout, to a guy with a, washing dishes. Yes, absolutely. And I live by those. The lessons I learned as a dishwasher uh, were the most important in my life. Show up on time. Have that the respect. Like a book. Have the lessons I learned washing dishes. I've written that book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and then at age forty-four, I found, my, found myself uh, standing. Uh, broke but reasonably happy uh, next to a deep fryer at a restaurant in New York, and I, I'd written a, a, an obnoxious over-testosterone account of my life that I didn't think anyone would buy, and suddenly I found myself on the bestseller list, and my life literally changed in the space of a week from a guy who never thought he'd see Saigon, much less Rome, to somebody who's now been traveling uh, for the last 10 years, anywhere I want to go in the world, doing pretty much whatever I please. So, uh, not to over-interpret what you just shared with me, but the fact that your life transformed at age 44, mm -hmm. that's extraordinary. Look at how many people give up long before then, saying, look, I'll never make anything in my life. I never had health insurance. I'd never uh, owned a car, I'd never owned a home, uh, I never paid my rent on time, I owed it to IRS 10 years in back taxes, I went to sleep every night uh, hyperventilating from fear for the, well, who's going to call first, the landlord, credit card company, or the, uh, you know, uh, the IRS. Uh, I had no hope of ever changing that situation, and that was good by previous year's standards. So it came as a big, big, big surprise to me to suddenly have the freedom to see this world and do the things that I'm able to do with the people I do it with, it, I think it makes me uh, grateful in a way that I, I might not be had it happened earlier. So who would have thought food can change somebody's life that way? It was an extraordinary story. Yeah, I was a dishwasher for like a year, but I didn't realize I could do this. I had six years before I'm his age and have to have accomplished the same stuff. <laughs> Got to keep but, at it. Keep working yeah, at it. Yeah. Keep, keep, you have to work on uh, the dishwashing. A I know. I feel like I learned a lot, but not quite as much. <laughs> so, Marion, I think most people who care about their health have either only a pseudo scientific understanding of nutrition or no understanding at all. So, uh, you you've got to be disappointed. Present with, company excluded. <laughs> you've got to be disappointed with the state of knowledge out there. No, I'm disappointed with the state of science and knowledge in general. In general, oh, yeah, um, yeah. It's just one aspect the, of it all. Well, it's an aspect that hits people personally. We put food in our bodies, and that makes it extremely personal. And it's some combination of protein, carbohydrates, fat. Yeah, I mean, nutrition's complicated. There are probably 50 different components in food that we need in order to survive, and it's hard to keep them track. And 
to keep track of them and you don't know what's in food. Can I live off of any one of them if I want to just go all no, protein? No, 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 variety, variety, variety. You couldn't live it's off of just secret. Diet Coke? It would be very difficult. <laughs> For how long do you think if you just drank Diet Coke would you uh, live? Let's like, see, like that two months, a year? Uh, uh, actually, it's months. probably very close to 70 days. 70 days, 70 just days. Diet Coke. Yeah, if you... Well, it has no calorie you, sources. It has no calories and no nutrients, so it's just oh, like... Yeah. It's so you'd also have to eat bugs. So it's the equivalent of water, and there have been studies, the Irish hunger strikers, for example, um, you know, they, they were very carefully studied, and on average they lived about 70 days once they decided not to eat anymore. Wow. Okay, so the Diet Coke experiment, proxied with water, would do that. Yeah, and if they ate something, then they would have lived longer. Right, right, right. You know? We gotta wrap up this hour. It's been, it's been an awesome conversation yeah. about food and diet. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, and I've had Eugene Merman, you've seen him and heard him before, and of course, uh, Professor Marion Nessel. Uh, thanks for being on Star Talk Radio. A pleasure. Oh and contributing to the information surrounding my interview with Anthony Bourdain. You've been listening to a 2013 interview that I conducted with Anthony Bourdain for Star Talk Radio. And what a kind, sincere, authentic man he was. It's, it's clear. Just listen to this conversation and you'll know. Uh, he doesn't hide anything. He's not ashamed of anything. He is candid about his mistakes, about his achievements. And you know, how many of us can really claim that? We'll miss him dearly. Let's get back to the interview with Anthony Bourdain. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City, where I also serve as director of the Hayden Planetarium. And I've got with me, uh, you've seen him before, you've heard him before, Eugene Merman. Eugene, thanks. We do, we, we, you've invited us to your Eugene Merman Comedy Festival, which is a great thing you got going over there in Brooklyn. Thanks. Thanks for having us yes. be a part of that. Thanks for being And just recently we did a show with you and like our name was on the poster. That was great. Yeah. yeah I've been on a poster before. Well, welcome to posters. Very cool. Yeah, I'm going to make you a star, Neil. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so this show is about nutrition, and we're featuring my interview with Anthony Bourdain. You might have seen him with his television show on the Travel Channel. He's going to have a TV show that's, in fact, he's going to move to CNN and do a, yeah. a food show. He'll be like Anderson Cooper in the middle of a food disaster, picking up food, going, <laughs> exactly. why? And I, and I said, I couldn't do this just with Eugene, although Eugene is a bit of a food expert, because you're a voice on Bob's Burgers. Yes. Yeah. You know, so he's got some food expertise. And, and I got a D in chemistry, so I bring that also All to right, the table. So I, but I, I, and he eats. I, yes. I had, but I had to bring in a little more expertise. Sure. Just uh, no offense here. Not offense. I, I uh, down Please. the street we've got New York University, a great institution, uh, one of the uh, jewels in the crown of New York, and we have Professor Marion Nessel, Professor of Nutrition. Thanks for joining us on Star Talk Radio. Thank you. So. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, you certainly know the guy, and you've heard, heard of him. It. Yeah, yeah, and so we've got a, a clip of my interview with him, uh, filmed previously, but we talked about just being in the kitchen mm -hmm. as a place to experiment, what kind of gadgets are available. And when we come back, I want to talk about sort of food science and uh, the science of the kitchen and what yeah. that means to you. Let's check out my first interview clip with Anthony Bourdain. What do you think of all the gadgets that help people cook food? They make great infomercials. In almost every case, they're completely worthless. The salad shooter. Do you really, you know, the ultimate salad delivery system. I mean, is cutting lettuce 
so hard. You know, <laughs> something that will cut onions for you is completely insane as far as I'm concerned. There is no better, a good, two good knives, a serrated knife for bread and maybe tomatoes, and a good quality chef's knife is all you need. And a cutting board, a couple of good heavyweight pans, and there's very little that you can't do. How do you distinguish between tricks, and I don't mean it in a circus sense, but just secrets mm -hmm. versus 10 years of doing it? Because so you serve a food to someone and say, what's your secret? As right. though you can just tell that to them and then tomorrow they can do exactly what you made. There and, are and no, at what point do you say, look, I've, I've been at this my whole life. There are it's no true. secrets. This is the, the, the secret of the restaurant business and professional cooking is there are no secrets. It is a mentoring business. Chefs spend their whole lives learning stuff and then because of the nature of the business, every few months teach everything they know, invest time they don't have in teaching somebody everything they know so that they can maybe have a Sunday off and that they could count on a crew. It's a military hierarchy. There are no secrets. There are no secret recipes. There are no secret techniques. Everything that you learn in the kitchen, you were either uh, told open source by your immediate superior and that's been shared with everybody in the kitchen, or you have learned it over time painfully. Uh, you know, the ability to tell when a steak is cooked by listening to it in the pan or on the grill or determining that a piece of fish is probably ready to come out of the pan just from the sound of it. Uh, these are things you learn through repetition, and that is the great secret. It's that this is how professionals learn, this is how home cooks should learn. People shouldn't be intimidated by recipes. They should understand that professionals learn through getting it wrong, getting it wrong, getting it wrong, getting it wrong, starting to get it right, eventually getting it right until it became second nature. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. You learn all of these things even if you don't understand the science behind why your stew is transforming, why it's becoming thick as it cooks longer, why your egg scrambles, why the, the steak gets dark on the outside when you uh, expose it to heat. You may have no understanding of, of the science behind that, but you instinctively, of course, through repetition, understand it, you learn to use it, and you count on it. Now, you've used two words in our conversation as fluently as any scientist that I know. First, E. coli just rolled off your tongue. Yep. And tectonic shift rolled off your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what is your science background? What did you? High school science. High but, school uh, science. Cool. High school science, but. But uh, it meant you you liked it, I guess. I I, I did, but um, you know, people talk about things in the kitchens like, you know, what's what's happening? Why is my steak getting brown? You know. Uh, the caramelization of protein, the Maillard reaction, you know, that's kind of cool to know. It helps you out I'm betting you didn't learn caramelization of sugars in high school chemistry. But you, no, you, you been... learned it real quick. First time you stick your finger in some, you learn it on a <laughs> cellular <not> level. <laughs> <laughs> How come that's hotter than water? I hadn't counted yeah, on that. It's, it's way hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that interview, I, I just became so enchanted by by him, I, I felt like yeah, I've known him my whole life. By the during that interview, so we're back in the kitchen. 
you like the kitchen. I love the kitchen. Why? It's, it's, it's the one place you can do legitimate science experiments and no one will fault you for it. Absolutely. And if you're really a good cook, you keep notes on what you're doing. And if you... A are, lab book. You keep a lab book. <laughs> you know? If Iran tried to build a nuclear weapon in a kitchen, no one would be so upset. <laughs> yes. You know, so if your cake fails, you try it another way. And so I'd be curious if, if on her shelf of cookbooks, she's got lab books <laughs> of what experiment failed cooking experiments, successful ones. Yes. So is there some experiment you remember most that you discovered yourself? Well, it's it's just anything that you make. You just keep making it until it works. I think it's interesting that if you cook protein, it sort of changes. Yeah, wh what was he saying when you, you would burn your finger if you touched uh, sort of... Did you need him to tell you that you'd burn your finger yeah, if you touched... No, but he said, but he said <laughs> he faster did. than water. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I don't know science. I'm oh, sorry. Physicist. Yeah, if you melt sugar and it's yeah, liquefied, yeah. it's at a higher temperature than boiling okay. water. Yeah, yeah. And it sticks to your finger, yeah, yeah. so it'll... Sticky. And, yeah. and if you look at chefs, you look at their arms and they've chefs. got... Chefs. Chefs. They've yeah, got yeah. blisters and cuts yeah, yeah. all over them. Because they've been fighting food for years in a hot kitchen. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so yeah, so like for example, you know, egg goes from liquid to this fluffy form because you're heating the proteins. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an interesting and sort of consequence and of it. Cream whips. Cream because you're beating air into it. Right, right, right. I mean, I love it. I love it. When we come back, more of my clips with Anthony Bourdain, and I've got Eugene Merman and the good professor of nutrition, Marion Nestle. See you in a moment. Talk Radio, we're back. Find us on the web at startalkradio.net. And you can listen to us three ways. You can download the podcast on iTunes and our website. You can find us in the airwaves, Star Talk Radio Radio. Also, we are on the Nerdist channel under YouTube. Check us out. You'll see us in video form. I've got Eugene Merman. Eugene, thanks. Sure. Thanks. And the good professor, thanks for agreeing <laughs> to help out on this interview. I, I interviewed Anthony Bourdain, and I didn't know, knew very little about him, and I got so... Yeah. Did you ever watch his show? It's, I did a call. Yeah. You know, we used Channel Surf and oh, all the food he's, folks. He's wonderful. Yeah. That's, it's great, great to learn about. And he's got a new show on CNN where he travels mm -hmm. the world, and he gets paid for that. Yes. I think most of the people on CNN it's a good are given yeah, I guess, yes, they are paid, of course. for their skills. His <laughs> is to travel around eating things. And eating things. And, I, and he's mm -hmm. actually pretty slender, so he's watching what he eats. So in my next clip with him, we talk about the molecular food movement, something mm -hmm. I, was, I was unsure what that meant, but it's all the rage, and let's find out where that takes us. I'm reading recently about the molecular food movement, mm -hmm. where if you have enough power over molecules, just... Right create the food from a molecular kitchen. What do you think of that well, trend? I think it's an unfortunate term. It's treating ingredients in new ways. It's manipulating pre-existing ingredients into unusual forms. And I guess the father of this movement was a guy named Ferran Adria, a great chef, a great restaurant, one of the most enjoyable meals I've ever had in my life. Where? where? Uh, called El Bulli in Spain. Mm -hmm. 50 cooks cooking for 50 diners. Never made a profit considered by many to be the best, best restaurant in the world. What Ferran explained what he did like this, he said, he's asking a basic question. Here's a truffle in this hand. Here's a perfectly ripe peach. The truffle's $1,500. The peach is a dollar. Which is better? Which is better? 
this is rarer, it costs more money, but is it more delicious than a perfectly ripe peach in season or a pear? So he started asking, what if I treat the pear like the truffle? I do everything I can that experimentation and science has, if I trick you into thinking you're eating a truffle, if I serve it in a way that you were forced to value it, that draws the eye, that changed the texture, what can I do to this to change its value, its perceived value, to surprise you, to take you someplace you haven't been before, but then bring you ultimately back to something that, at the end of the day, tastes like a delicious, delicious pear. So, yeah, they used a lot of natural, mostly natural ingredients like agar-agar, the, the stabilizers, various processes to either intensify flavor, to trick the mind into, you know, eating a strawberry that doesn't look like a strawberry or a uh, apple that looks like uh, and feels like caviar in the mouth. That could be fun and exciting in the hands of somebody as talented as Ferran, and it could be a long, miserable night in the hands of somebody who read about him and thought it was a cool idea and started doing ghastly and terrible things to food sheerly to dazzle. Well, yeah, why is that different from I go to the, the cheap deli and they've got the crab salad, but it's fish made to look like crab? Ferran would agree with you absolutely. There, there is nothing different. It's a technique and a process just like making ham. A leg of pork is a good thing, but as it turns out, if you pack it in salt and then you know hang it and age it and smoke it, it becomes even more delicious. So it's basically taking that same engine whether we're talking a sea leg, as it's called, that fake crab, or the making of ham to a, an extreme degree. Okay, but at least that's still using natural ingredients or ingredients available to them. It's not really coming out of the chemistry lab. This is not chemistry okay, lab. Okay, so there's some molecular movement. It is, not a, the yeah, bad it, is, name. it is a modernist cooking that understands and refined and that you know they spend a lot of time in workshops or laboratories figuring out why does an egg scramble? What process is happening already when you agitate and beat proteins? Yeah, proteins, proteins get all... Right, so what can we do? How can we play with that process? So we're not talking about introducing chemicals. In almost every case, most of the stabilizers or things like these were extracts of or natural ingredients that are used elsewhere in, in other cultures. So it's not chemistry class, but it certainly does look like a laboratory. One of his more famous dishes is the spherified olive, which is essentially the extract of the best olives turned into juice and then dropped into a solution treated with a substance, a natural substance, which causes it to basically spherify into a liquid sphere contained only by itself. So you pick up something very delicately that looks like an olive and it explodes into liquid. It's <laughs> thrilling and delicious. <laughs> So it's like the essence of olive turned into a bigger olive. Just as delicious as the original olive, but with excitement, surprise, wonder, and, you know, 50 courses of this, it's really like taking off to the moon. You're, you you, you yeah. look stunned by this description <laughs> of the essence of olive turned into an olive. Well, I've had one, actually. You, you had one, and what is it? It's like having a mouthful of olive oil. Ew. Good olive oil, mind you, but still olive oil. Like best ever olive oil. It could be. Okay, so but then... A little, but little, but not as thick or as thick? Yeah, pretty much just tastes it like olive oil. If so, you take the essence of an olive, that's oil, right? Yeah, that's right. what olive presses well, do. Well, I'll go home and drink some olive oil and be like, that. And there you go. That, and you'll save yourself a great deal of money. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so is, are these chefs gone awry? Is this like... Oh, I think they're having fun. It's boys with chemistry sets. What? <laughs> Murdering people. <laughs> yeah. That's it's, true. It's chemistry sets. Up. They get to play with all this really cool equipment. They get to play with liquid nitrogen. What could be more fun than that? I want, liquid, I want a liquid nitrogen nozzle in my kitchen. See? There you go. I've you, always wanted that. I think there you, you probably could have one, right? I could probably rig that, actually, yeah. now yeah. that you mention it. So if you had Liquid nitrogen is very cool. It's, it's nitrogen like in in the air, in case you didn't know, 78% of the air you breathe is nitrogen. If you cool it enough, it will liquefy, but now it's like raging boiling and because you, it boils. Very cold. Yeah, it's 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 boiling at a very cold temperature. And what would happen if you sprayed it on a fish? Uh, you would instantly freeze the fish. And then if you, and then you microwave it, would it be delicious? <laughs> freeze it, then microwave it, then you have a mushy fish, right? All right. Just I, trying to see how well you know science you Yeah, yeah. So, no, I've never tried that, but I think that's what would happen if you did this. So, uh, maybe there, there are things that a chef could still do to food that these boys with toys haven't mm -hmm. yet devised. That's, well, they're working on it. They're working on it. And there are it. lots of them working on it. So, but don't, wouldn't it help if they knew the chemical properties of fat versus protein mm -hmm. versus carbohydrates. It. Some of them might. I don't know why you're assuming. Well, no, well, well, I'm asking, yeah. what in your experience, yeah. do chefs have I mean, the kind some, of... Some do, some don't. Do chefs have the nutrition knowledge that you have? I mean, you're an expert, of course, but do they have your threshold of knowledge that you think everyone should have? I don't think so. They have knowledge about cooking. That's what they're doing. And they're trying to take the, what, what little science they know and apply it. Would they be a better yeah. chef if they knew more of what you knew? Possibly. Possibly not. Because so much of cooking is about taste and flavor and getting a feel for how you deal with the Do you concern yourself much with taste? Absolutely. I, yeah, she seems to... Absolutely. You think people should eat moderately different things. Of things that are delicious. Yeah, so that they enjoy yeah. it. She's not trying to get everyone to eat weird, like, paste yeah. that is neutral think, of calories. I, I think healthy food should be absolutely delicious. That's how you'll convince people. No. Okay, a, but, but you know, the, to me, a really, the stereotype is that the healthy food is nasty and well, it's like taking your I medicine. I think that is anymore. More, actually, I think that's changed. Well, it now, change. I mean, says my, the man who's a voice in Bob's Burgers. My, my, <laughs> my, my, <laughs> It is at this I'm moment. I'm invoking it a word in as an argument. Here. Go. Um, no. uh, my idea of a really great chef is somebody who can make vegetables absolutely delicious. So that's all you want to eat. Ooh, that's an interesting chef's challenge. Yeah. And Take many, a meat eater and have him fall in love with the vegetables. Many, many chefs can rise to that challenge without yeah. any trouble at all. It's true. Many. Just go to Blue Hill. Yeah, Blue okay. Hill is not a bad place to start. Okay. So you know about Blue Hill. Oh, my God. I've had carrots. <laughs> <laughs> they, they start out with little tiny yeah. spiked carrots yeah, and radishes. Remind me, Blue Hill has their own farm or yeah, something. Is that do. right? It's and they, really they, delicious. They do. They control all their own yeah. vegetable products, if I remember that yeah. correctly. They just do. because I'm on a cartoon with the word burger doesn't mean <laughs> I eat only burgers. Okay. I'm just, just, just I didn't mean to like, offend. <laughs> I'm curious about something. When people eat, uh, different foods react to their systems differently. You know, some people get indigestion. I mean, do you study the chemistry of people's reactions to food? Well, one of the things that's really fabulous about the human digestive system is that it can take anything and turn it into calories and nutrients. Oh, okay. Really anything. And if the, there are some people who are sensitive to certain foods and have food allergies and other kinds of problems, but most people just... Even tofu? <laughs> even tofu. <laughs> just most, making sure, I'm just curious. Most people can take 
anything that was that used to be alive and that's edible. So we turn it into. So we're a calorie factory. We just wood. We're a calorie factory. Wood. A wood would be hard. Yeah, if no, we were some people could. That's not suggestible. I want to talk about eating no. wood in a minute. For that, you need termites. Sure, exactly. <laughs> uh, when we come back to Star Talk Radio, more on our show on nutrition. Be right back. We're back on Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I got Eugene Merman and Professor Nestle. Nestle. The verb or the net? The, <laughs> the verb! The verb, excuse me. To Nestle, yes. We're talking about nutrition. We're featuring my interview with Anthony Bourdain. And we were coming out talking about could you eat wood? Now, of course, termites eat wood. Mm -hmm. And they're having a field day doing so because mm -hmm. they have the digestive enzymes that can get calories out of wood. They have bacteria in their intestines that allow Those bacteria. them to do that. Okay. We have bacteria in our intestines that can handle food fiber, but I don't think it handles wood very well. Oh, okay. But actually it doesn't digest the fiber, it just passes it through, right? Uh, it digests some of the fiber. The bacteria can digest some of the fiber, some of the fiber. and turn it into little volatile fatty acids that oh. get absorbed, etc., etc. Okay, so we can eat, like, so lettuce we can eat, but not like oak leaves. It would be difficult. It would be difficult. Would, would it be poisonous or just unpleasant? I don't know whether oak leaves are poisonous or not. I'll tell you in a few days. <laughs> yeah, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that experiment and be sure and take notes? No, but think about a future. If, if there's a food shortage in the world and we mm. managed a way mm -hmm. to eat something first that allowed you to digest wood, because mm -hmm. wood has calories in it. It's got mm -hmm. energy. That's why you can burn it in a fireplace. Absolutely. It's just not available to the human body right. as an energy source. Mm -hmm. So we can imagine a, a day where you can digest wood. And what would we do with all the jokes about food tasting like wood chips? <laughs> we would have to swap them out <laughs> for another object <laughs> or plant. Right, some food, right? Some food that, that, that tastes like wood. Like, would not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Tastes like sawdust. Yes. <laughs> Which is still so wood. In, in my interview with Anthony Bourdain, we, I talked about sort of the animal aspect of eating meat. I mean, if you're going to eat meat, it's a dead animal. Okay? Are you. Are agreed. People, agreed. Okay. <laughs> not no, a, uh, not a debatable topic. <laughs> yes. Uh, but what does it mean to, to eat something that's been completely. Uh, where its origin is completely concealed from you. It's just a burger. It's just a... Oh, I see. Not like a farm-to-table kind of thing, but more of like just like buying a big pile of meat or finding it on the Right. Would you Rapid go out and kill plastic. the animal if you Rapid knew that's plastic. what you were about to eat? Let's find out what our conversation says. punch an animal out and murder it. Yeah. My fist. Mm. Uh, maybe it's more true in America than in other places, but particularly in the carnivorous realm, we shield ourselves from the animal mm -hmm. itself. We buy a chicken, you don't see the feet. Right. You don't see the head. It's, it's just packaged and it's just a piece of meat. Is that a good thing? Or, I mean, you probably no, just it's say a it's a terrible thing. thing. It's, but, but why? Why do you even okay, care? Okay, for a whole lot of reasons. It's always good to know where your food came from. It's only fair and just. My friend Fergus Henderson was a, a pioneer of what's called the nose to tail movement. He says it's only polite. You know, if you're going to kill an animal or more, more often have an animal killed for your restaurant or your kitchen, it's only polite to eat as much of it as possible, to not waste. People should understand where their food comes from, how it was raised, uh, what the impact might be on their on society as a whole in that process. But I think also just as sentient, caring people, 
a decent person would prefer that their animal is raised reasonably happy and, and killed with a minimum of cruelty. But if before everyone ordered their cowboy steak, right. if they said, go outside, find the cow that you want us to slaughter, look it in the eye and pull this trigger and shoot it. Honestly, I, I think that's an experience. The, the more people who are who can do... A cow with big eyelashes, you know. I, uh, it is something I've done. When you travel this world, you meet your dinner frequently. It's difficult. When you've killed your first pig, you really start to abhor waste, disrespect to the ingredient. I'm a lot more careful about how I cook my pork now. You know, I understand something died for that pork chop, okay? I think you become a a better citizen of the world and a, a more rounded person when you have seen that process and you've made some personal decisions as part of that. Uh, but it's a, it is a life-changing thing, and I think everyone should take part in it. I think that's deep. Do you agree? Absolutely. It's philosophically Absolutely. En- enriched outlook mm-hmm. on the food that you, that, that you confront. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many people don't eat meat because they can't bear the idea of either raising animals for food or killing animals for food. People who do eat meat, if they're thoughtful at all, have to come to terms with what that means. And his coming to terms obviously is he, he wants to respect. It has a lot of respect in it. I think that's a philosophical position that'll, that a lot of meat eaters yeah. have these days. I, do this I want my meat raised humanely. Yeah. I know I'm going to be killing it, but I want it at least raised humanely. My one little part of that mm-hmm. that I do for myself, when I'm eating a shrimp, I eat the shrimp with the shell. Ah. I figure the shrimp gave its life. I'm going to eat a shell as well. But, plus, it's chewable anyway. It's not like a lobster shell. Right. But also... I eat the lobster shell because I'm a little better than you. <laughs> but also, uh, when, when I cook a lobster, you know what I do? I just, I remove the the claw mm-hmm. rubber bands before I put uh. it in the... Oh yeah, doesn't everyone do that? No, I don't think so. Because I, 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 I... You would I, boil rubber bands with your food? No, I, I want the lobster to have one last chance to bite me before uh, it goes in. I see. Right, it's just, it's just, a, it's a... It's I a, guess... I selfishly do the same thing because I don't want to boil a bunch of rubber bands. <laughs> so it's good that we're both good people. But me when we come back, more about eating animals and some of them even carry diseases. When we come back to Star Talk Radio. We are back. Star Talk Radio. Neil Tyson here. You're a personal astrophysicist. I've got Eugene Merman, comedian extraordinaire. Love your stuff, Eugene. Thank, Thank you. you. And Professor Marianne Nessel. Uh, recently authored a book. This uh, Why Calories Count. Why Calories Count mm-hmm. from Science to Politics. Awesome. And that's not your first book. No. It's not your first rodeo. No. You've been writing about this stuff for a while. So mm-hmm. thanks for being on. We're talking Pleasure. about nutrition. We're talking about food. Talking about cooking. And in this segment, we're talking about slaughtering animals, uh, some of which might have some disease that you want to avoid, and it includes interview clips that I conducted with Anthony Bourdain. Let's get right to, at the top of this segment, my interview with Anthony Bourdain, where we had just come out of talking about slaughtering animals, facing them in the eye, if you really want to appreciate what you're eating, and the fact that animals are a source of disease yeah. in the world. Let's find out. Some pathogens in our culture are directly traceable 
to viruses that hopped from animals that we either farm or eat or where do, how does that does that scare you sometimes I, i'm thinking of avian flu or or mad cow disease or even aids with contact with the the rest of the apes I, you know i think uh, exercising reasonable caution the same way you would if you travel around rural america uh is a useful thing to do wherever you go i mean the days when i would eat uh way as far out of my comfort zone uh you know, as a daredevil, just so that I could tell friends that I drank, uh, you know, live cobra blood. I don't do that anymore. I guess I would advise people against. I, I generally well, you used to do that early on. I was so grateful to be traveling. I didn't think this whole TV thing would last. I'd never been anywhere. So yeah, when I was in Vietnam, I made sure to get the live, still beating cobra heart and drink its blood. Just so I figured when it all ended, six months later, at least I'd get a free beer telling that story. You know. Um, I long ago changed the way I travel to be much more interested in the typical everyday thing. I think if you use the same philosophy, people always ask me, do you get sick? Just stomach problems from traveling around, eating all that street food. Always ask yourself, is this how your average person eats? You know, is the place busy? Uh, it's generally not going to be a concern. If you're aware that avian flu has become a, a, a concern in the area, yeah, uh, you know, undercooked poultry is probably not going to be a good idea. You'd have to, you will have to think about those things. Uh, if there's mad cow around, you know, maybe you know, calves' brains at a dodgy pub w would would not be your first option. But I, I, I think if you familiarize yourself with what's going on, as any cautious traveler should, and don't take unreasonable risks. Um, you know, eating brains or spine in a uh, in a in a mad cow area would be a bad idea. This, so just same, using common sense. Yeah, just like they're not drinking the water in Russia from the tap. You shouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> do as the natives do. So, Marion, uh, how much attention do you give in your profession to not only nutrition of food, but the hazards that the eating of food can bring you when they're contaminated? Oh, I actually have a book. It's called Safe Food, The Politics of Food Practicing Safety. Practicing safe food. Yeah. That, that uh, yes. safe food, yeah. exactly. You, got you, know, I, you know, there's E. coli, botulism, hep A. Yeah, I'm, the, uh, the Centers for Disease Control says 48,000 people in America get sick with food poisoning every year, and there's 125,000 hospitalizations and 3,000 deaths. Those are the standard figures. But so I what do you do to avoid this? I try to, when I'm traveling, I try to eat food that's been cooked. Cook the food. Cook the food. Oh, cooking does wonders. And, and never a sandwich safety. that you find on the ground. Uh, <laughs> never a, eat a ground no, sandwich in Russia, they always five say. Seconds, not I'm a good, not, in the, right. well, not more than five seconds. Uh, but wait a minute. Anyway. So, all right, so you cook the food, but also cooking removes some of the nutrients from food. Isn't that Yeah, right? but not seriously. Okay. You know, it'll kill a couple of the more dicey ones like vitamin C and folate, but the others will be fine. And you will be so much better off eating cooked food in places where the water's dirty that you'll be grateful that you did okay so that's but how about how about the pathogens that are not organic that like like mad cow disease isn't that just a folded protein or something yeah, that's that, a folded protein that's pretty rare hey no, what's no, a folded po protein because everyone knows what that is it's a misfolded protein that makes it even worse what is that um, there are proteins in your body, you're, yeah. that's, and this one happens to get into the brain, and it's bad, and it's folded wrong, and it mm -hmm. makes others fold wrong, too. 
Uh-oh, and then your whole brain folds wrong, and what yeah, a folded yeah. brain is a dead brain. It's That's really what I bad. say. Yeah, it's bad. Okay. It's bad. You don't want to get that, but it's rare. Yeah, you definitely don't want to get fold brain. It's rare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, avoid the fold brain. Okay. And it's something that cooking the food would not prevent. No. So avoid eating food. the brains of other animals. Yes. Okay. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> I really Sorry. Oh. When Sorry. we come back to Star Talk Radio, more with my interview segments with Anthony Bourdain. We'll see you in a moment. We're back on Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. And we're coming to, to our final segment on this program where we're, we're featuring my interview with Anthony Bourdain. Yes. And, uh, and Professor, you've been commenting on this. It's been, been great. Just fleshing out what we're trying to explore, what, what it all means. We came out of that segment talking about folded proteins. You didn't know about a folded protein? No. And I'm willing to bet a lot of people did. Misfolded. <laughs> misfolded. Everybody <laughs> knows about like a perfectly folded protein. It's the misfolded proteins that catch most of America. The origami right? protein where they yeah. messed up the, the third, yeah. the, the third which, standard form. Which is a danger that is unlikely and can't be avoided by cooking. Both of right. those things. Great. So um, I'm... Not afraid. Don't need animal put that, yeah. and, and how good is cooking at killing viruses as opposed to bacteria? It's fine. Which, that'll do it's that fine. too. Cooking is really helpful if you're trying to kill bacteria right. and viruses. And so it could be one of the greatest contributors to our longevity. It could. The fact that we started cooking food back when fire was tamed by cavemen. Yes. That, that's <laughs> if you boil a person with a common cold, you will kill the common cold. <laughs> so the question is how what's to find that perfect temperature before they die. Mm. Well, Just, that's kind of what your body does when it raises is its temperature mm. is fighting bacterial infection. Mm. So you were not completely wrong, crazy with that suggestion. <laughs> but I want to boil people <laughs> to kill the virus. But in fact, your body sometimes doesn't know how high to bring the body temperature and it can mm. kill itself, right? right? Mm -hmm. With a fever, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, oh. so there. Uh, so I, I spoke with Anthony Bourdain about food in interesting, more exotic places, like food in space. What Rhode Island? <laughs> what, what astronauts eat? Name one person who's ever been there. We're gonna go to Mars, or we're gonna go someplace. Just food at high altitude. Later this afternoon, I'm gonna be speaking with the space station astronauts, and I'm gonna ask them. In part inspired by this conversation, I'm gonna ask them. Since it is an international space station, did they ever get together and swap each other's foods? <laughs> well, they do. I've spoken to some astronauts about this, and it's really interesting what happens to the palate at altitude and in outer space. Apparently, you know, if you have a stash of hot sauce, you're the go-to guy in outer space. <laughs> they crave spice and uh, like chili sauce, Tabasco, some kind of good spicy relish seasonings. Something uh, to keep in mind. If if our next mission to Mars, would you? Volunteer to be their chef? Um, or advise NASA I'd on it? Really be interested in going to Mars. Now, I ain't cooking. I had 28 years of it. Somebody else can bring the food. <laughs> I'll bring the hot sauce. <laughs> you, well, you could be the, the spice man, I guess. How to make the food better. Well, and, and it's, uh, you know, airline food tastes so differently on the ground and, and at an altitude. Uh, they have to completely reimagine it for what it's going to taste like up there. So I think I'd be well. Given my experience in Southeast Asia, I think I'd be a good choice for the master of condiments. <laughs> Marion, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, I, I conducted that interview, but it didn't hit me until just now that if your taste buds, your brain taste bud connection changes according to altitude, you need a different 
cuisine at every yeah. stratum it's, of, of it's where people money live. money tastes so good eating in, in Aspen. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so Ed, what, do you, what, is, what do you know is known about eating at altitude? I don't think it's, uh, I don't think the reasons for it are known. It must have something to do with the loss of oxygen tension. Yeah. There's just less oxygen. Less oxygen. And yeah. even in uh, on, a, on an airplane, that is not pressurized to sea level. It's pressurized right. at much lower, which puts less stress on the fuselage because if they pressurize the cabin at at sea level, at sea level pressure, then seals begin to give, and it's it's. And I'm, no, you I thought at, at first you were like, you were talking about seal the animal. No, like, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Oh, you don't know how planes work. <laughs> <laughs> you think they're powered by seals, <laughs> oh boy. And so, uh, and in the space station, the same thing. So, so they might up the oxygen level to the same per breath, but the total air pressure is going to be less. Mm -hmm. And we know you can survive in lower air pressure. So that's that's fascinating. But so things don't taste as good and it's harder to boil water. Yeah. Well, yeah. well so well harder to cook an egg. You can boil the water. You won't cook the egg because it boils at a lower temperature. Oh. Yeah. You knew that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds familiar. <laughs> I don't spend a lot of days boiling eggs in high altitudes, but sure, I've heard the thing. Right, about so what it. happens is as you go to higher altitude, there's less air pressure mm -hmm. on the surface of the water. Right. And so the water's trying to evaporate itself and it, at, at sea level, and it's fighting all these air molecules. You go to lower air, lower air pressure, water's popping up willy nilly, and so the temperature the water boils is uh -huh. lower. Now you want to cook your three minute egg. The egg says, I'm ready for 212, but you only give me 180. So right. your three-minute egg becomes a five-minute egg. S sounds like you, sh you, could, you shouldn't be poaching eggs in space. <laughs> but you should be making omelets on a nice hot pan, right? <laughs> yeah, so we need a whole new cookbook for your, very, for your various cooking. altitudes. For the amount we're trying to get to Mars, we haven't thought about how we're going to cook on the way there. We don't have to feed robots. <laughs> That's, we just give them sunlight. Yeah. So we, we should re-engineer humans so that we can run on sunlight. And that then, would be terrific. I but, would love a helmet that absorbs solar energy. But then it's not as tasty. The whole the food traditions of our world would yeah. be gone. We've got to start wrapping this up. Okay. Professor Nestle, thanks for coming. <laughs> and and Eugene, and, and your book is out, just came out a few months Why ago. Why Calories Count. Why Calories Count. I'm, yeah. I'm all over that. And yeah. Eugene, are you going to read her book? I, I am. I'm actually <laughs> totally excited to get your book. She should have brought a free copy oh, for me, but I'll get it on iTunes or something. And that was great. I want to publicly thank uh, Anthony Bourdain again for granting yeah. us that interview, and he was such a Hi, great Anthony. guy. Anthony. I like your stuff a lot. And he was, I like his food. He was so frank and honest, and he was such a great guy. You've been listening to my 2013 interview with Anthony Bourdain on Star Talk Radio. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we will all miss him deeply, uh, not only just for his larger-than-life personality, the fact that he made the world a little smaller for us all, but we'll miss him because the world needs more people like him in it. And his death is a loss, not only, of course, for his family and for CNN, for all of us who knew him. Uh, for me, I think it's even a loss for civilization. You've been listening to Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. 
Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.